We ended our previous episode considering St. Edith Stein's understanding of the phenomenon of empathy, doing so by way of a maternal, metaphorical image. My guest, Donald Wallenfang, expressed this idea the following way in his book Human and Divine Being. An infant within his or her mother's womb attests to the radical dependence of the self on the other biologically interconnected through the media of umbilical cord, uterus, and amniotic fluid, the infant and the mother share a common bond of life through their most proximate and sanguineous relationship. The phenomenon of empathy proceeds from this originary relationship of prosopic intimacy. It is where the lived experience of the other becomes the lived experience of the self, Empathy is the event in which the pathos of the other is suffered simultaneously or born by the self. Though originating in the lived experience of the other, the empathic experience of the other's lived experience is impregnated paradoxically within the self. The emergence of the other's experience within the self manifests and proclaims that which precisely has not originated primordially within the self. Empathy reenacts the paradoxical relationship between the self and the other, verifying the ethical responsibility of the self for the other inasmuch as the other affects me beyond the shadow of a doubt. That's Donald Wallenfang. My name is Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. In this episode, we'll continue and bring to a close my conversation with Wallenfang concerning Edith Stein's understanding of empathy. Before that, though, I want to take a quick bit of time to explain something of this podcast, what it's all about and all. Essentially, I see each episode as part of a longer pilgrimage through the Catholic imagination. That is, an exploration of the vision of reality, God, ourselves, and others that has been shaped and developed over the centuries by that faith centered on the incarnational revelation of the triune God. I want this show to be part of that gradual movement toward greater fullness that is captured in the image of pilgrimage. As it is, then, I want to spend sustained time with the personalities and movements that have shaped this Catholic vision. So the idea of the show is to spend a couple episodes spread over a number of weeks with a particular person in the tradition. Of course, presently we're focused on Edith Stein. In about two weeks, we'll transition to St. Augustine. I want this show to, in its small way, help unfurl the richness and depth found in the Church's past and present, this being done by focusing on the personalities that have given tangible expression to the joy and challenge of living in relationship with Christ and His Church. With that said, let's get to part two of my discussion with Donald Wallenfang. I gave a more full bio blurb last episode, but just as a short reminder, Donald is professor of philosophy and theology at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit and is a secular discalced Carmelite. All right, let's hop back in. I mean, kind of going with that line of thinking there regarding sort of 
sort of the, the pregnancy and motherhood in that early stage of our lives as being a almost incarnational symbol of what empathy is. I'm wondering if we can kind of continue in that direction of considering our embodiment. And, you know, in reading Stein, I've, I've been struck by her emphasis on sort of being attuned to the embodiment of of the other. And I'm thinking here within the collection of essays on woman and her thoughts on education, how the teacher obviously needs to be attuned to the student. But if the student is experiencing an empathic awareness of the teacher, then that places a great onus on the teacher to express value for that, which is truly worthy of our, of our valuing and mm-hmm. almost like a disgust, not a disgust, but, you know, a negative judgment over those things that are based. So, I guess that's, you know, just to kind of foray into this topic of embodiment and empathy and how does that all work together for Stein? You know, the act of listening, the act of being aware of others' expressions. Yeah, those are great points you're making there about uh, even a kind of pedagogy of embodiment uh, that transpires uh, in the process of education. Yeah, so uh, the body for, for Edith Stein is of course always of a piece with the soul, the integral united human nature uh, that the soul is the form of the body. And empathy happens, it's not just a spiritual phenomenon, even though we might locate it as primarily in those terms, but it's very visceral. It involves the viscera of the human body. And if you imagine someone, you know, cutting an onion and accidentally slicing into their finger. You can feel it in your body mm-hmm. uh, in addition to to your soul. Uh, so this is, it's in it's, as you said, it's very incarnational. It's a very uh, Catholic sacramental concept that uh, the lived experience of empathy is at once uh, for us human beings and our human nature and uh, embodied experience. So she talks about this zero point of orientation within the experience of empathy. So when we when we really analyze ourselves or the self and kind of peel back the layers of the onion of the self, so to speak, at the center is what she calls the zero point of orientation, that a spiritual center of the conscious life of the soul that perceives the world and you can't abstract any uh, any more from that uh, core of the person that is the, the soul, the zero point of orientation. Nevertheless, that zero point of orientation relies on all of its, its data of discovery to come through the senses and be processed through uh, the imagination and so forth. Uh, and then expresses itself in and through the body as well. I'm wondering, you know, thinking of just kind of, you know, I mentioned education just a little bit ago, and you've mentioned the the instructive wonderment that children display for us. Uh, I wonder if we can kind of tie those two things together. So, you know, Stein's going to talk about how an education in love and personhood is essential for our flourishing so, you know, if we kind of change gears from thinking about teaching or philosophy in general um, to parenting and raising of children, where do you see the phenomena of empathy 
uh, as being in the raising of children? Yeah, I think it is key indeed, uh, beginning yeah with the family, with the parent and child relationships, because I think every person yearns not only to be listened to, but to be empathized with, uh, especially young people, thinking about young people. They want someone to feel what they feel with them. And working and serving in youth ministry for nine years is something I really realized uh, as time went on, that a lot of teenagers, young people are hurting in different ways from different things going on in their lives. And they really long for somebody uh, with whom they can share their how they feel about what's going on. Even when it comes to the sad event of suicide, that's often precipitated by some degree of mental illness. But a lot of times, I mean, I've been to workshops on suicide when I was in ministry, and a lot of times what's going on is people don't um, feel like anybody else is caring what they feel. And so this self-injury is a way to try to express how they feel and try to get someone's attention who's not listening or empathizing with them all this while. So um, empathy is key, I think, for for good parenting and, and vice versa, for good um, learning. It's a mutual kind of phenomenon. Uh, so um, education altogether, in Stein's perspective, is for the sake of the holistic development of the person and the flourishing of the common good. And empathy itself is like the glue or the adhesive for this pedagogical vocation. Going from, from you know, thinking about the intrahuman and the communal, uh, you know, being in, in relationship with others, uh, you know, in a collective way, I'm also wondering if, Empathy is at work in our openness to that which is completely other, you know, capital O other, namely God. Is empathy involved in our reaching out or being reached uh, by the divine? Yeah, certainly this is the case. And on the, in the recent wake of the canonization of St. John Henry Newman, uh, he has an idea to this effect. And it's interesting, even uh, St. Edith translated some of Newman's, I think his diaries and I think maybe letters from English to German. So that was another one of her translation projects, uh, some of the work of St. John Henry Newman. And for Newman, conscience, he described as the voice of God within the self, so the voice of the other within the self, especially the voice of God, is is conscience. And uh, for the moral life, this is key, that conscience is, is working, that the voice of God is speaking within the self. And this is a form, you could say, of uh, empathy. It has uh, uh, an empathic structure to it, or gestalt the uh, the role of conscience within the moral life because again we're bearing the other 
within the self uh, as prescriptive for how we should live. Where do you see in her own life the dynamics of empathy playing out? Yeah, it's really interesting when you read her autobiography called Life in a Jewish Family that she wrote during the time of um, the uh, rise of the Nazi culture to try to show that Jewish people are real people like anybody else. Mm -hmm. And um, just relating just this common human experiences throughout her life. So I think that sheds a lot of light on this question when we look at her uh, her work, Life in a Jewish Family. And and in St. Edith, she's very realist. This is for sure. She's very down to earth. Uh, she's very real in her descriptions about other people and even herself. Uh, so she, she was, in a sense, an expert at the intellectual interworkings of empathy. But for her own life, it came as a struggle. And I think as it comes for all of us, trying to grow in empathy and having an empathetic heart for other people. So um, she gravitated oftentimes toward solitude, uh, which then would come full circle with her vocation to be a cloistered Carmelite nun later in life. But solitude doesn't mean a lack of solicitude or care for the other person, uh, especially within a, a Carmelite spiritual tenor. But nevertheless, um, she was a people person, I would say, overall. She enjoyed being with people, and she saw the complementarity between solitude and sociality. One concrete example is during World War I, uh, she voluntarily uh, enrolled as a nurse for the Red Cross during wartime to take care of injured soldiers. So she spent about a year's time as a Red Cross nurse interrupting her studies to do this. So that was a real concrete example of this. Also, as an aunt, she had um, uh, siblings with children, and she would um, spend time with them. In her autobiography, she talks about how, you know, at family gatherings, uh, she just, she loved playing the children's games. Um, and so she had that uh, contemplative but very social demeanor, uh, I think, throughout her life, which is exhibited. And, and the last two things are, uh, as I said before, she became this Carmelite nun. And the vocation to Carmel is not... Uh, meant to be a selfish withdrawal from the world. But it, in fact, is to unite one's life uh, with radical empathy and solidarity uh, to the cross of Christ for the sake of salvation of souls. So she has this beautiful quote, and I'll just um, read it from, mm -hmm. I quote it in my book, uh, but she says this, quote, there is a vocation to suffer with Christ and thereby to cooperate with him in his work of salvation. When we are united with the Lord, we are members of the mystical body of Christ. Christ lives on in his members and continues to suffer in them. So you can really hear empathy coming through there. Yeah. And further, she goes on to say, and the suffering born 
in union with the Lord is his suffering, incorporated in the great work of salvation and fruitful therein. That is a fundamental premise of all religious life, above all of the life of Carmel, to stand proxy for sinners through voluntary and joyous suffering and to cooperate in the salvation of humankind, end quote. That's uh, from one of her letters uh, that she wrote to um, a friend, Annalise Lichtenberger. Uh, but how powerful is that that passage? And getting at your question, how did she live empathy you know, to the highest degree in her Carmelite vocation? And even reading her own murder at Auschwitz in the gas chamber, along with her sister Rosa, who is a third-order Carmelite, um, as somehow, in some mysterious, strange, uncanny way, uh, participating in this collaboration with Christ in the redemption of the world. Mm. Absolutely. I am also struck by what you mentioned earlier regarding her reading Teresa of Avila's autobiography in one night sitting. And I, I can't help but imagine that she in the reading was experiencing something of what Teresa of Avila originally had, had experienced. Mm -hmm. and, and that must've impacted her to such a depth that upon closing the book, yeah, as you said, she would say, this is truth. Mm -hmm. right. uh, maybe not just in an academic or intellectualized way, but in the fullest sense of the word to close things out. I'm wondering if you could, in three or four sentences, whatever it would take, really, uh, what would you say makes Edith Stein a shaper of the Catholic imagination? For sure. Hopefully that's not my first sentence that counts. <laughs> <laughs> that does not count, no. Oh, it may take me a little more than four sentences, but I, <laughs> I do have uh, about three main points uh, to answer this question. How does St. Edith shape the Catholic imagination? Uh, I think one thing that's a real signature trait of an authentic Catholic thinker is someone who refuses facile or just oversimplified reductionisms. Uh, someone who refuses to fall prey to the temptation to think in a reductionistic way, which then is, is to fall into what's called ideology. So the Catholic thinker thinks toward the whole. The very word Catholic comes from these, these Greek words, kata, the prefix, means according to, and halos means the whole. So the Catholic is the one who is committed to think toward the whole and admits all the way that I never think it all. I never think it all at once. But I am committed in a kind of covenantal way to think more than I've thought before. And that is always where I'm at in thinking. And that is always where uh, St. Edith shows herself to be. There's always more to think. The whole itself, we're talking about God, who by definition saturates every attempt at our tale to pin the tail on God. <laughs> um, as St. Thomas Aquinas often would write, non solum, fill in the blank, sed etiam, fill in the blank. So I mean, not only X, but also Y. So in the Catholic world, not only scripture, but also tradition. Not only faith, but also 
works. These kinds of, of pairings, uh, so this both-and way of thinking is inherent to Catholic thought. And finally, um, St. Edith, she shapes the Catholic imagination like her colleague Eric Shavara, like St. Thomas Aquinas, like St. John Henry Newman, like St. John Paul II, and so many others, uh, by incorporating into her approach uh, the image of Martha and Mary, as we find in Luke's Gospel, that scene where Mary is sitting at the feet of, of Jesus, his friend Mary, and Martha, her sister, is busy with house preparations and cooking and cleaning. And and Martha asks Jesus to ask Mary to help her with what the work she's doing. And not to be disparaging of the work Martha was doing, but we hear Jesus saying, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it shall not be taken from her. Uh, so St. Teresa of Avila talks about this pairing of Mary and Martha, and while the accent is on Mary, who signifies contemplation, Martha also is nearby that the contemplation would bear fruit in uh, the practical life in uh, concrete episodes of gift so Edith embodies all of this uh, in her life and in her work, and therefore I think uh, she is a wonderful shaper of the Catholic imagination, and uh, and these reasons you know drew me so much to her work and bring me back to her work, and I even am so bold as to suggest even in the the introduction of my book Human and Divine Being that uh, she she may one day be named a Doctor of the Church along with uh, some other fellow Carmelite doctors of the church. Thanks to Donald Wallenfang for his time and insight into the life and thought of Edith Stein. For more on the themes we discussed, and much, much more, I recommend his book, Human and Divine Being, a study on the theological anthropology of Edith Stein, available from Cascade Books. Thanks to you for listening. I'm grateful for you joining me. Of course, I'm hoping you enjoyed today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and maybe even tell a friend about it. Tell that Bill or Bella in your life they too should listen. Every bit helps this young podcast get its legs underneath it. In our next episode, we'll consider Edith Stein's thought on the relationship between faith and reason, or natural and supernatural reason, as she would put it. Until then, let's continue journeying further up and further in. Mm-hmm.